Good evening. I didn't know how some of you looked up close, but you look good. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> glad everybody's here tonight for our monthly question and answers. Seems like it's been a little while since we've done this, but we missed July. But looking forward to getting into it tonight. Also, whoever, and I don't know who it is, someone made a box for the questions right at the front of the as soon as you enter into the entryway here. And I just want to say I appreciate that. And also, if you have any more questions, be sure to put them in the box there. And then Neil and I can get to those when we have the next one in September. Tonight, we have five questions on the screen. And then there was one additional added on this morning that didn't make it onto the slide. But we'll answer that one as well before we get into our singing tonight. So let's begin. Number one, is it wrong for a Christian to fear death? The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. There's no one who lives on the earth that will escape death. Psalm 89 and verse 48. And yet the Bible says that for Christians, death and our view of it has changed. Jesus says in John 11, 25 and 26, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. If a man believes in me, he will never really die. And so for the Christian, though death is a reality, ultimately Jesus has changed the way we view it. Hebrews 2 and verse 9 says he tasted death for every individual. And so whereas we previously were fearful of death, now in Jesus, everything has changed. Turn your Bible to Hebrews chapter 2 and notice what's said in verse 14 and verse 15 about Jesus not only entering into the human experience, but what was accomplished as a result of that. Hebrews 2 and verse 14 says, for as much then as the children, that's humans, were partakers of flesh and blood, he himself also likewise took part of the same, that through death. He might destroy him that had the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death for all their lifetime were subject to bondage or lifelong slavery. And so Jesus defeats death through death. And the sting that death once enjoyed over humanity has now been stripped of that. Paul says, oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, where's your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. First Corinthians 15, 55 through 57. And so the Bible says for Christians, death is not the end. Death is not the same as it is for the rest of the world. We have nothing to fear. And yet, if we're honest, sometimes we're still afraid. When I talk to Christians about this and this question comes up or somebody says I'm afraid of death, what Christians most of the time mean is really not fear about their eternal security, though there is some of that. First John 5:13 says that's taken care of. We can know that we have eternal life. Many of the questions that Christians sometimes have concerning this fear of death is the act itself. I mean, I've never died before. Have you? We wonder about how it's going to be. What's the transition going to be like? Is it going to be painful? Isn't going to be prolonged. How does it feel to make that great transition? I know where I'm going, but how am I going to get there? And even there, the Bible has something to say about it. it says Jesus died for our sins, but even he was afraid. Hebrews five and verse seven. It says he offered up strong prayers and cried with tears to the one that was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence or his fear. He was afraid. But even in those fears, the Bible says, you know, this verse. Yea, though, or even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will. What's the rest of the verse? Fear no evil. Why? Because there's no evil to be feared, but because God's with me. It's not only wrong for a Christian to fear death, but I would say the Bible speaks in different terms. The Bible says it's unnecessary for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Philippians 121. And maybe we'll still have fears about exactly how that process is going to occur. I would argue that there's grace for that. But in the end, for the Christian, death is not punishment. It's promotion. We won't see exist when we die. We'll transition into our most glorious existence. And the Bible says he'll take these lowly bodies eventually at the resurrection and fashion them like his glorious body. So we have nothing to fear. If the first Christians would 
fear death. They might have renounced their Christian convictions altogether, but the Bible says that they didn't fear death. They overcame the devil because they trusted in God. They loved not their lives unto death, and they trusted in the power of the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 12 and verse 11. And to the extent that we do the same, we'll be victorious. Don't fear death if you're a Christian. God allows us to live, to truly live, and to know that death is not the end and that we've already defeated it. We're not afraid of what we're going to leave behind because we've already sent our true treasures up ahead of us. And when we get there, it'll be as grand as God promised it would be. The last thing I'll say on this question is John 5 and verse 24. Jesus says, whoever believes in me and on him who sent me doesn't come. He's passed from death to life because he has believed on the name of the son of God. Is it wrong for a Christian to fear death? I would argue it is, but I would go a step further and say it's unnecessary because Jesus has removed the sting of death. And ultimately, God's going to be with us, not only in life, but through death and all the way into our eternal lives. Here's number two. Can a woman baptize a man? And maybe I misworded this. It's just period. Can a woman baptize? Now, this question is multi-layered and multifaceted. Let's start with what Jesus says about baptism. You remember Jesus gives the great commission to the apostles. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he says, go into all the world, disciple the nations and baptize them into the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And when you read throughout the New Testament, that's exactly what you see happening. Acts chapter two, it appears at least that the apostles do the baptizing. Those that gladly receive Peter's words are baptized. Acts chapter two and verse 41. But as you keep reading through the book of Acts, it's not just the apostles that baptize. Even faithful Christian men like Philip, according to Acts chapter eight, verses thirty five through forty, teaches the Ethiopian eunuch one on one. The Ethiopian nobleman says, see, here's water. What hinders me to be baptized? And Luke writes that they went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptizes him. What we find in the New Testament, the pattern that emerges is that Christian men are baptizing penitent believers into Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. About midway through the first century, the Corinthian church starts to struggle with the deadly disease known as preacheritis. You remember in 1 Corinthians 1, 13 through 17, they start to argue. Well, one says, I'm of Christ, another, I'm of Cephas, another, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos. And in 1 Corinthians 1, 13 through 17, Paul makes this point. He says, were you baptized into the name of Paul or was Paul crucified for you? Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Lest any should say I baptized in my own name. He says, I baptized the household of Stephanus. But besides this, I don't know whether I baptized anybody else. Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not not with eloquent words, lest the gospel should lose its power. Paul's point in that section is, in the end, it doesn't really matter who does the baptism. And aren't you glad that that's the case, that the efficacy of our baptism, the power of it is not really attached to who baptizes us at all. If that were the case, your baptism and mine would only be as good as the person that baptizes us. No, instead, Paul argues, our baptism is linked in power to the one into whom we were baptized and for the reason we're baptized. And still, the Bible says, for the most part, this pattern, I think is interesting to note the deafening silence on any woman performing any baptism in the New Testament. So here's what I would say. So far as we have New Testament examples, we should just follow the biblical pattern set before us to the extent that we do that. We know we're on safe, sound and solid biblical ground. Wherever we can duplicate what we see in the New Testament, that's exactly what we should do. And when we do that, we never have to worry about whether or not we're pleasing to God. Somebody says, but wait a minute. What about in extreme cases? 
I mean, what if there was no man around to baptize anybody else and all you had was a woman? I would argue based on what we find in the New Testament in those scenarios, in that situation. It would be fine for a woman to baptize a person lest they perish in their sins. Acts 2:38, Acts 22 and verse 16. But I hasten to add that that would only be in an extreme situation and where that would happen. It would not be wise to post it or to publicize, it, especially in a world where people are struggling already with gender roles and authority in the church. And we would be unable in that situation to give all of the background and all of the context in that moment. What would be most important is to not lose the importance of what has taken place, to not let that be overridden by the fact of who did the baptism and to be sure that we don't cause a brother or sister to stumble. Proverbs four and verse seven says wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And with all you're getting, get an understanding. We should be concerned about whether or not this is going to cause a brother or sister to stumble. Very few of us are going to find ourselves in that extreme position. And so we should not argue from the extreme and make that normative. What we should do is where we see the biblical pattern, follow that. And where there is an extreme case. And that's the only option that's left remaining. I believe the New Testament argues that there is no power in the one doing the baptism. There would be no reason to forbid a woman to do so. But only in those extreme cases, I would say that's what we should do. We should do everything we can not to cause a brother or sister to stumble, to do exactly what we find in Scripture. And remember it where that extreme case even exists to make it more about who they were baptized into and the purpose of their baptism more than we would who did the baptizing. People should rise from the waters of baptism, thankful that their sins are forgiven and glorying in what Jesus has done for them by his grace and not arguing about who did the baptism and who didn't. And where we can silence those disagreements, we should hasten to do so. Here's number three. Can a woman perform a wedding ceremony? I think you see a theme, right? (laughs) You might be surprised to know the New Testament says nothing, not one thing about wedding ceremonies at all. So far as we know, Peter, James, Paul, nor John ever performed a wedding ceremony of any kind. It was often left in the first century world to the civil authorities. That's who performed the wedding ceremonies. Now, in our culture, it's transitioned and people want this religious backing behind their marriage and their wedding ceremony. And there's nothing wrong with that. So far as I can tell, there's nothing wrong with a woman performing a wedding ceremony as a judge, as a civil authority, or maybe even as a family representative. However, if she were to perform a wedding ceremony as a preacher, whether that was in a church building or in a religious setting, she would be in error for doing so, not because she performed a ceremony for a wedding. The Bible says nothing of that. Her problem then would be she's violated what the New Testament teaches concerning male leadership in the church. First Timothy two and verse eight, all the way into chapter three and verse seven says that women are to learn to submission and not to occupy the role of a minister, a preacher or that of an elder. And so if in a wedding ceremony, she was not occupying a civil position, but did so under the pretense or even under the appearance of a person in a religious setting, the error would not be merely in the wedding ceremony. But it would be in that she exercised the position of religious authority, which the Bible says she cannot. Have you noticed the theme in the last two questions, though? Questions like, is it a sin to do X? Is it right to do X or wrong to do X? And I'm not against any of those questions. I don't have a problem with you filling the box with questions like that, except to say, as we grow in our Christian maturity, the question is not merely for any matter. Is it a sin to do X or Y? But is it noble and is it what's best? That's what Paul prayed for the Philippians. Philippians chapter one and verse 10. Paul prays for them. And then he says, I'm praying that you may approve of things that are excellent 
and be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. You see, the bar is pretty low at is it a sin to do X? Is it right or wrong to do X? The question for the Christian moves beyond that. We graduate beyond that to this question. Is this the most noble, godly, best thing that we can do? And if we can answer that question, then we can answer the others. We should be thinking in occasions like this that many times non-Christians attend wedding ceremonies. Have you noticed that we should not do anything that would cause them to stumble or give us trouble later on when they ask us questions about our religious faith and inquire about such? And so we should do our very best to remain consistent in all things. Our liberty is for service and not for self. Galatians 5:13. Paul says you've been called to liberty. Only don't use your liberty as an opportunity to serve the flesh, but by love, serve one another. Do what you can to never cause anybody else to stumble. Can a woman perform a wedding ceremony? She can do so as a civil authority or in a sort of uh, governmental function. But in a religious sense, no. I just think it's interesting, in addition, that the New Testament is far more concerned with marriage than it is with weddings. And maybe when we get that same focus, we'll have better marriages. Here's the next one. Number four. What about fasting? Should we fast? This is the rest of the question. Should we fast? If so, when? What does the Bible say about this? And what do we miss out on when we fail to fast? Leviticus 16 and verse 29, so far as I can tell, is the only time in the Old Testament where the Bible commands a fast and it's on the Day of Atonement. It's mentioned again in Acts chapter 27 and verse 9. Paul just calls it or Luke calls it the fast on that occasion or the day where they afflict their souls. You read throughout the Old Testament and fasting is often described as an individual foregoing a meal, refusing to eat or partake of food in order to devote themselves to prayer and devotion to God. In fasting, what an individual is saying is this situation is so important to me. This means so much to me that I will refuse to eat and dedicate that time in prayer to God about said situation so that God can hear me. God can see that I'm willing to go without food in order to offer up this prayer to God and focus on it. We're saying in that moment in fasting, God, this matters to me and I want it to rise to your importance as well. We talk about different fasts today, fasting from technology, fasting from complaining. And there's nothing wrong with those things. I just want us to appreciate whenever the Bible talks about fasting, it's always talking about food. So when you read in the Bible about fasting, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about giving up a meal in order to devote more time to prayer. Throughout the Old Testament, Jews started to corrupt fasting. You might go back and read Isaiah 58, 3 through 12 and Zechariah 7, 3 through 7. The Jews started to think that fasting was like magic. And that is so long as they fast, it didn't matter what they did or how they lived. As long as they were praying and not eating, God was going to hear their prayers. God says not so. God says the fast I want is a fast where you refuse to eat and you pray to me. And it's also linked with a spiritual heart, a righteousness that is in consistency with the very prayer that you're offering up to me. Where that's not the case, fasting does no good. In fact, to refuse to eat and to pray as much as we have before or to pray less is not a biblical fast. It's not merely for health purposes or to withgo food, but not to increase in our prayers. The Bible says prayer and fasting do have a role, but they're not magic. You could fast and pray and still have your request tonight. It's not the way to get God to do what we would have him to do, but it is to say to God, I'm really concerned about this and I hope you'll hear my petition. When you transition to the New Testament, Jesus says, you remember Matthew 6, 16 through 18, when you fast, 
Don't disfigure your face so that people know you're fasting, but anoint your face and then fast in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. It's interesting that people in various religions and even under the umbrella of Christendom will sometimes fast and they will mark themselves in such a way as to say, hey, I'm fasting in direct contradiction to what Jesus says we should be doing here. Or what about this one? Sometimes Christians will say in the church, well, nobody fasts. We don't fast as much as we should. But if we're doing it like Jesus says, my question is, how would you know? You couldn't. Jesus assumed that his people would. When he was pressured by the Pharisees in Matthew 9, 14 through 17, he said, when the bridegroom's taken away, then will my servants fast. He assumes that we would fast. And he says, when you do it, here are the biblical parameters. Never do it for show. It must be a personal decision. And you're doing this and it's between you and God. There are two occasions when the church fulfills Jesus's words in Matthew 9. Turn your Bible to Acts chapter 13. Acts 13, and this is right before Paul and Barnabas go out on what's called the first missionary journey. And in Acts 13 and verse 3, after the Holy Spirit says, separate to me Paul and Barnabas or Saul and Barnabas for the work that I've given them. Would you notice Acts 13 and verse 3 says, when they prayed with fasting, they sent them out on this missionary campaign. That's the first time. So we see prayer in the New Testament linked to people going on missionary tours. And then the second one, go to Acts 14 and notice verse 23. Acts 14, 23, this is when Paul and Barnabas circle the wagons and go back to churches that they had previously visited. And the text says, in the appointment of elders, they prayed and then they fasted. My point is this. It wouldn't be wrong for us to say, you know, sometimes a group says we're going on a mission trip and we'll talk about all of the shots we need to get and all of the health things that are concerning us and all the things we should expect as we go on this foreign territory and on this soil. But we should appreciate that we're not going on a merely humanitarian trip. And maybe it'd be a good idea to say, you know what? God bless our efforts as we prepare to do this. And we're going to withgo food for a time to devote ourselves to prayer and to fasting. And the same thing's true of the eldership. As we think about what happens when a congregation appoints elders, it would not be a bad idea to say congregationally, we're going to withgo food for a time so we can devote ourselves to prayer and to fasting because the decision as to who's going to serve as elders in the local church is just that important. And it should mean just that much to us. At least we should consider it based on what we find in the New Testament. Now, what about time periods? Briefly, before we go on to the next question, when should we fast and for how long? Paul did for three days, Acts chapter nine and verse nine, but it didn't remove his need to obey the gospel. Fasting is not a substitute for obedience. He still had to obey the gospel. There are three people in the Bible who fast for 40 days and for 40 nights. And all three of them were on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. Moses, Exodus 34 and verse 28. Elijah, first Kings 19 and verse eight. And Jesus in Matthew chapter four and verse two. The Bible specifies no time period. A person may say, I'm going to go without food for a day or for several days. A person may say, I'm going to go without food in the daytime as long as the sun is up for this week or for these two or three weeks because I'm going to pray about this event or about this thing that's taking place in my life or about this procedure or about this change in the church. All of those would be fine so long as we know that fasting does not guarantee that our request will be granted. It doesn't twist God's arm and it must never be divorced from faithful Christian living because that is the true biblical fast. And the last thing is this Bible commands don't cancel out each other. What I mean is the Bible says that you're to take care of your spiritual health, your physical body and well-being. And so if a person has physical conditions and the doctors have said you need to eat your blood pressure, X, Y and Z for this, it wouldn't be a wise idea to pitch your spirituality against good common sense and to say, well, caution to the wind. I'm fasting for Jesus's sake and to put yourself in danger health wise. Fasting is a spiritual sacrifice, but it's not the only kind. 
It's not enjoined upon us or commanded, but it is expected when we're to do it is solely up to us. At some point in our Christian lives, I believe we should be in a circumstance or situation when we do fast. And when we are, we should do it to the glory of God and between us and God alone. Here's the next one. If God knows everything, why do why does he allow bad things to happen? Is God trying to teach us a lesson? God does know everything. The Bible says his understanding is infinite. Psalm 147 and verse five. And yet bad things happen. The depths and the riches of his knowledge and wisdom are beyond our ability to fully comprehend. Romans 11, 33 through 36. And yet bad things happen. We should appreciate the bad things that happen in our world in view of the three worlds. And I think if we understand the three worlds, it will help us to appreciate why bad things happen and our relationship to those things as well as God's. World number one is Eden. In Eden, there was no sin. There was a perfect creation, a perfect world. Everything that God made was very good. Genesis 131. But sin came into the world and death by sin. Romans 5 and verse 12. And we can never go back there. The perfect world that was ours in Eden has been forfeited because of sin and transgression. And so then there's world number two. That's the world we currently inhabit. Jesus had this to say about the second world. In the world, you will have tribulation. John 16, 33, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. This world is filled with goodness, with blessing and with the presence of God, but not with tribulation because we live in a fallen world. And so long as we're here, there are going to be problems. There are going to be issues. And then there is world number three. It's what Peter calls in Second Peter three thirteen the new heavens and the new earth, that final reality where we all want to go, where there won't be any sin, no hardship, no problems, no evil. And so as long as we realize we're not in world number one and we're not yet in world number three and world number two, there will be problems. There will be difficulties. And so long as we're here, we should expect that. Now, the last half of this question is, does God do it to teach us a lesson? And here we should proceed with caution. Sometimes God does it to teach us a lesson, but that's not always the case. You know, that's what Job's friends thought. Well, surely Job is suffering because God is trying to teach him a lesson. But that's not always the case. Sometimes we suffer because the devil is tempting us. That's true. See Job chapter one. Sometimes we're suffering because God is trying to use affliction and hardship to teach us a lesson. That's a possibility. Sometimes we suffer because we've made bad decisions and God is not mocked and we will reap what we sow. And sometimes because of the decisions of others, it's nothing to do with us or with God. But the Bible says that in everything we go through, God's able to use it for good. In the Bible, it's interesting. The question is not really why God has always called suffering. But the admonition to God's people is to try to see how God can bring good from it and to look toward that end. Rather than trying to figure out exactly where our suffering is coming from, if we're faithful children of God, we should be saying no matter what it is that's taking place, God can bring good from it. And based on that reality, we can persevere through any hardship. And if the only lesson we learn in suffering is I really want to get to world number three, well, then that's lesson enough for us all. And that'll help us to be the people God would have us. Now, the last question is not on here, but like I said, it was one that I received this afternoon before this evening service. And it is this. In view of our huddles on Wednesday nights, is it right for a woman or even an all woman's huddle within the huddles to offer up an answer or to offer up a, a part of that discussion for the entirety of the group? And in so doing, is it a violation of First Timothy two eleven through 15? 
the huddles, so far as I can tell, are various groups. And then within the huddles, there are other groups within them. We say that we have facilitators in those groups. I would say that these individuals are leaders. The reason we use the word facilitator is because the individuals leading those groups aren't giving a teaching lesson. They're not giving a lecture, but they're still the individuals that are leading those groups. And I would argue based on that, a woman is able to make a comment and even to make a lengthy comment without being in violation of First Timothy 2, 11 through 15. If you turn your Bible, go ahead and turn it to First Timothy, chapter two, 11 through 15. And notice what Paul forbids in this passage and what he does not. In First Timothy 2, 11 through 15, Paul says, but I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And both of those things are important. Paul says she can't teach and exercise authority over a man. The Greek word authentane, and Niels talked about this before, but this word is unique in its uses in the New Testament. It only appears once and in its literature throughout the first century world. It's a word that doesn't come up a whole lot. But what it is that she takes over, that she has this leadership authority that she dictates and that she pretty much runs the show in connection with her teaching. That's not what's taking place when a woman makes a comment in a Bible class or even in a huddle type setting. I would liken it unto a woman making a comment in a normal Bible class, in an auditorium setting where she may make a comment, maybe even a prolonged one with other cross references. She wouldn't be in violation of this passage any more than a non-Christian who comes to our assembly and who may make a prolonged comment in Bible class, no one would say, well, you all have non-Christians teaching in the Bible class. No, you would say they've made a comment. They made a contribution. But there's still someone that's in charge of the Bible class that is teaching and that is doing what Paul says men should do in 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12. And so a word to the facilitators in the huddles, I would simply admonish us to be careful and to make sure, though we're not giving a lecture in these Wednesday night huddles, to be sure that we realize that these are groups where we're having discussion, but there still is someone who is, for lack of better words, quarterbacking the entirety of the huddles, and there still is someone who is in charge, and that's not left open-ended. It's not left up to any women in the group, but neither is it left up to the man with the strongest personality in the huddles. Those facilitators, and maybe a better word would be those leaders of the discussion, in my judgment, serve as the leaders in those classrooms, and that's what's being communicated in the huddles. And it's not in a violation of First Timothy 2, 11 through 15. A question like this one, though, shows that people are concerned with following what the New Testament says. And they're concerned about making sure that we do it right and that we get it right to the glory of God. And we should always appreciate that in its sincerity and in its honesty and be able to go to the Bible and say, this is why we're doing what we're doing. And whether it's huddles, whether it's Bible classes, whether it's devos, we always want to make sure we do what the New Testament says and that we practice things in a way that would glorify God and not detract from that. Bible questions, they're a great way to learn. And maybe tonight we've stimulated more questions in your mind. And like I've said before, there is a box out front that can be used to put more questions into it. Maybe tonight. You've had the greatest question of life on your mind. That is, what must I do to be saved? We've already talked about that. And that is. Turn to Jesus Christ in faith and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. And when you do that, God adds you to his kingdom. God adds you to the church. Maybe we can pray for you tonight before we join into our singing service. We're going to use this as an opportunity to pray for or with anybody who needs it. If you need to respond, come now as together we stand and as we sing.